Hi, and welcome to Headline Talks, our podcast on European news coverage and those at the heart of it. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest to you. It's none other than David Boati, the Europe correspondent of the Swedish public broadcaster SVT, who also happens to be a Swedish acting legend. Hi, David. How, uh, how accurate was that introduction? Uh, quite accurate. I researched it in advance for our conversation today. You played in 19 series and films. That's incredibly impressive. I knew you'd done certain things, but I had never counted it, how much it was exactly before today's conversation. Mm-hmm. It's a really impressive transition, actually. Well, that, well that's a long story. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I was a child actor, you could say, and, and into my young adulthood. And then I, I kind of did both things for a while, and then I completely transitioned to journalism. And why, um, why journalism? What made you want to become a journalist? Well... To be honest, I was—I um, had the best possible score on a test that you do in Sweden to to get into university, and and I felt like I have to use this. And the only yeah, I could become a doctor, lawyer, or journalist. That was the three options that you needed this best score. And I felt oh, the other things sounded boring, so I went for journalism. And well, it had it suits me well. You know, some of the things that I that I loved with the making films and so on. The, the the telling of the stories and and um, transmitting something to an audience, I, I can use also in in this line of work. I remember um, people call you the king of the lives. I can imagine that your background as an actor must come in handy when doing all these lives. Perhaps, yeah. I don't really. It's hard to see myself, you know, from outside like that. But I, I guess uh, I, I have a yeah. I've been trained in in delivering. Uh, written lines in a way that it feels spontaneous in a way so I usually they're quite well prepared these lives but but the best things of course is when something happens you know when you're at the Marine Le Pen uh, final thing and all of a sudden La Marseillaise starts playing and you take a break in the live and oh listen to the or or yeah something happens in the background so that it really has a a live feeling to it I I know a lot of my colleagues don't like doing all these lives and and feels like it takes time from the from doing the reportage and and so on but I I must say I quite enjoy it I think it's um the heightened sense of being alive and present and is a bit of almost mindfulness meditation focus the chatter in the head is silent for a second and you're just live in the moment and if you if I say something stupid I'm on YouTube forever so there is a there is a sense of presence. Well, it's. I think that's the coolest description I've ever heard of doing a live. And do people in Sweden, do they recognize you mostly as a correspondent or as an actor? Well, now I don't live in Sweden. I So back in, I mean, historically, most as an actor, I did a couple of films and series that were very popular, but it was this was in the, in the early 90s. I would say now I think the public figure of the journalist has taken over. The last few summers when I've been visiting Sweden, I, I've noticed yeah, more people coming to ask about my line of work that I'm doing now rather than what I did in the 90s, which I kind of appreciate. I mean, I, 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 it was fun what I did when I was a kid, but of course it's more interesting to speak about what you're actually doing right now and, and so on. Well, we're actually speaking to you in a very exciting week. It's your very final week as a correspondent after three years in Brussels. And can I say that you've had a really historic and unique period as a correspondent. I mean, you started with COVID, in the middle of COVID, when Sweden was also known for having a different kind of approach. And then 
the war in Ukraine happened and, and Sweden completely shifted its perspective on joining NATO. And now the final six months has been the Swedish presidency of the Council of the EU. I mean, how did you perceive that? Do you feel that it was a historical period to be a correspondent? Uh, yeah, it's been amazing and it brings to mind that expression, may you live in interesting times. It has certainly been uh, interesting times. At first, when we moved down with the whole family, it was in well, uh, the summer of 2020, so in the middle of the pandemic. And uh, of course, everything we did, me and Philip, the cameraman that I usually work with, was almost everything was COVID-related or vaccine-related and and all these closed-down cities all over Europe and all these uh, tests sticking the thing up your nose and and, and, and the logistics, well, you remember, we, you, you helped me out a lot to try to find like, oh, we, we have to have a test in Sofia, but it has to be less than 48 hours before getting to Greece. And then we have to have the results in time to be able yeah. to, uh, it was such a hassle. And um, yeah, and then of course the, the war broke out and, and that has dominated completely uh, the reporting since. So it's been two major events that have overshadowed everything else. I mean, there's not been much time for uh, these more feature, uh, I don't know, the trying wines in Tuscany mm. or something like that. It's been very hard news all the time. And so what are some of your favorite stories that you've done while you were correspondent? Well, uh, to me, it's uh, I love when we are able to to tell something big in in... In the, I'm lacking the words now here, but to, to tell a, the bigger story in a small story. You know, when we met in the village in the east of Poland where these two missiles fell down and the whole world was like, are we having a third world war now between NATO? And, and, and to be in that village and talk to the, to the woman who was watching the news on TV and seeing her own little village on the world news. Or, um, well, of course, one big topic apart from these two, we have talked about is the migration, which is always a very sensitive uh, political topic in Europe. It's been a bit pushed away by the during the pandemic, but now rising again, of course, with all these tragic things that have been happening. And uh, meeting these persons, whether it be on Lesbos or in Bosnia or in the south of Italy, it's um, interesting. Yeah. And how important, you've mentioned Philip, uh, Philip Hagens, for those listening. How important is it to share all these stories with one cameraman who you take everywhere with you? Well, I think it's, well, for us, it's, it's been, it has worked out really well. I mean, we know each other professionally really well. I know I can trust him. I know that if I just start doing a piece to camera in the middle of a situation, I know he follows me. And, and also on the personal level to have a, a brother in arms that you go through all these things. I mean, sometimes it can be quite uh, emotional and intense and a couple of situations were almost, well, a bit, I wouldn't say dangerous, but, you know, risky. And yeah, it's been a very, I mean, for periods of time during these three years, we, we've met each other more than our respective wives. So I, I would say also, of course, we get irritated with each other from time to time. And But it's been great working with Philip. Brother in arms, that's a, a nice description. So we've already mentioned it, this whole shift that Sweden made when it comes to NATO. How did you experience that? Because even two years ago, for example, it would have been impossible to imagine that Sweden would ever join NATO. And now the country's on the brink of joining. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
And when I grew up, historically, there's always been a quite massive public opinion against joining NATO. And then I think something happened around 2012, somewhere there around, and so it became more or less 50-50. And then when the war broke out, then all of a sudden it just skyrocketed, and now it's, well, I don't know the exact numbers, but it, there's a vast, vast majority of the Swedish population want to join NATO, and also the the Social Democrat Party, which is the, the biggest party in Sweden, made the shift traditionally that they've been against. So that was a quite um, rapid shift in both the public and the political opinion there. And of course, it, those few months when this was happening and all of a sudden Sweden was applying for NATO, I, I felt it was also my my job and, well, the job of all of us journalists to to try and tell the story of this shift and also keep our heads cool and also ask the critical questions and so on because of course it's it's quite a dramatic shift in 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 the view of Sweden's position in 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 the world and and the security and and military strategies and so on so it was uh, it was a challenge to to not just get sucked in this general almost hysteria like all of a sudden you know everybody was like NATO NATO and but um yeah of course the 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 self image of Sweden as a neutral country hasn't really been true for quite a while. I mean, the, if you uh, even I mean in the nineties or so on, uh, it was quite clear that I mean, if you have to choose between Soviet or Russia and U.S., Sweden was in the Western team, so to speak, and has been that for a long time. It's this this um, uh, how do you say uh, this uh, neutrality has been not really true for quite a long time but uh, so clearly outspoken and now choosing to to enter NATO that's that's of course a big shift yeah and how did you report on the pressure from Turkey on Sweden in this whole uh, NATO membership process yeah well we tried but it, this this has been a quite difficult story to tell because most of the decisions are made in rooms somewhere in Ankara where we cannot access there's not really well, as I spoke before, there's not the, the, the migrant in the south of Italy or the woman in the village in Poland. There's no one. I mean, maybe most of it, it's in Erdogan's head uh, or <laughs> in a room with his closest. Or maybe, I don't know, uh, in a room together with some American deciding if they can buy F-16 planes or these kind of things that for us... It's been very, I mean, we tried to follow and I think our prime minister, he gets, he got a bit almost bored with my, once he was like, oh, how many times can I, <laughs> can I say that it's only Turkey can make Turkish decision that that's a, a line now that uh, Ulf Kristersson, the Swedish prime minister has said, I guess, <laughs> 50 times. <laughs> well, this year marked the, the Swedish presidency of the council. I remember you sending pictures that it started with an ice hotel. Do you remember that correctly? Yeah. How, what was that like to return to Sweden as the EU correspondent and stay in a magical ice palace? <laughs> yeah, well, I was. Uh, well, I sent pictures also to my daughter who loved the the Frozen movies. It was it felt like we were in those. Well, I must say, I mean, in these three years, I've been traveling all over Europe and most of the the member countries and Moldova and everything. But Kiruna is actually one of the most exotic places I visited. Yeah. Uh, even as a Swede, I mean, I live in Stockholm normally, and and Kiruna, Sweden, is a very, very vast and long country, and and Kiruna is quite exotic there up in the north. There was a 
what is it called? That thing in the sky? That, that Aurora. Aurora, ex- exactly. Yeah. And I just missed it. I had to oh. go earlier because I was going to a wedding and the other, the colleagues, they uh, they posted on, on Facebook like the Aurelia Borelis <laughs> that night that I left, which was a bit of a pity. But that was, um, it was interesting to to go there together with all the other Brussels correspondents from all around Europe to, to kind of, I mean, we met with the Swedish government and so on, but that's, I mean, I do that quite often. It was in a way more interesting to hear the, the colleagues a view from outside on the Swedish uh, presidency and yeah, so on. And how did you perceive the presidency now that it's coming to an end? Well, it's been a very Brussels-based presidency. There was a question hanging in the air. I remember there in Kiruna in the beginning, a lot of the Brussels colleagues were wondering what will, will it mean for the presidency that the Swedish government is now based on the, the Swedish Democrats, uh, like conservative nationalist party with a, a view on migration that is stricter and also on, on climate policy, a, a different view than, let's say, the mainstream politics. And since, I mean, two of the big legislative things on the table in the EU are just migration and fit for 55. There was a lot of questions about will Sweden drive these forward now that the government looks like it did. And But they, they've been doing it. I mean, fit for 55 is almost done. There's still some tax uh, tax part, which was not really expected to, to be done because you have to have unanimity, which is, as we know, difficult in, in EU. And the migration pact the actually the council the member countries did agree on a migration pact quite recently which was uh, a bit i would say a bit surprising it was not obvious that that would happen so uh, i think um i think from from outside the view on the swedish presidency is that, that it's been i asked the, the swedish eu ambassador before how would you like the presidency to be described afterwards and he said well efficient and uh, pragmatic uh, and I filled in boring and he said <laughs> yeah a bit boring that's not too bad and and I think uh, that might be the um, that might be the the verdict uh, quite pragmatic efficient and a little bit boring I mean they had a lot of all the informal meetings in Stockholm was in in this uh, I, I never went there because I had colleagues in Stockholm going but in this uh, place just outside the, the airport which is not I mean when when Macron had his uh, thing in Versailles, and it was quite a different approach to to this was a more pragmatic approach. But uh, well, we'll see. But I, I think the the verdict is still out there. But I think it will be at least well um, godkent, you would say in Swedish. Uh, maybe not the highest grade, but with sturdy. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine you must also be looking back on your time as a correspondent now that it's coming to an end. Do you have any regrets, places you would have liked to have visited or things you would have wanted to have done differently? Uh, not yet. They might come up. I'm, I'm still in the middle of it. We have this summit coming up in the, in the, in the end of the week. So I haven't really... I mean, I, I did... I have a... The job description is a bit impossible in a way. I am the Europe correspondent for Swedish television, which means covering EU politics and everything else. The the elections in Italy, France, Germany, the, I don't know, the COVID protests, uh, protests uh, against pension reform in France, uh, migrant disasters, uh, you know, everything. Which means it's been three years of always feeling that I fall short in a way. 
you know, that I, I miss some things. And, and being a bit of a, a gatekeeper for what the broad Swedish audience gets to hear and see and learn about Europe uh, is, is quite a big responsibility. And I sometimes feel like, oh, okay, I couldn't tell them this story because I didn't have the time. And also, of course, there's just so much airtime as well. So even if I would have made twice the stories, they would maybe not have been published. One thing that I do regret, I remember my first, um, I, I got to do it a couple of times uh, afterwards. Uh, I had to, I got to sit down with Jens Stoltenberg and do a in-depth, uh, well, seven minutes interview in the studio there at NATO. And it was just when, when Sweden was about to apply and everything. And I had on my list of questions, I remember I put down, how do you know that not a country is going to do it? Like in EU, we are in the European Union, we are used to, well, Hungary, but also other countries sometimes using the fact that when you need unanimity, you can use it as a leverage to get maybe something else or, you know, that there is a difficulty when you need to find unanimity. And I wanted to ask him, like, how can you feel sure that that's not going to happen now? But, you know, seven minutes are short and time passed by and I had a lot of other questions and, and I didn't ask that question. And that, that, I regret that because it would have been nice in the, in the documentary, <laughs> final documentary about the Swedish NATO process to just uh, show the audience that we actually asked that question beforehand. Um, so that's a, a slight regret. Well, let's hope that it's, uh, it's been rectified now, now that it's <laughs> on the record in a podcast. Do you think the NATO summit in Vilnius next week, so we're recording this on the 28th of June, do you think that will be a key moment for a Swedish membership? Well, everybody talks about it. I, you know, I've been speculating about this so much for the last few months and, and I've been wrong quite a few times, so I I don't really dare to. I don't know, when this is published, maybe we are in the, <laughs> so someone is listening when actually the Vilnius summit is going on and, and my prediction will already be obsolete, so. Of course, there is a, I would say if it doesn't happen in Vilnius, which looks more and more probable, it starts to be a bit embarrassing, not only for Sweden, but for the whole of NATO. And I think the pressure on Turkey, uh, Turkey or Turkey and Hungary is uh, increasing because you, you feel it now, I think last time when, when the defense minister Austin from the US and the others that we're meeting here in Brussels, that there is a sense of, it kind of um, undermines the credibility of NATO and the open door policy, etc. If if it's such, I mean, countries like Sweden and Finland that most would agree are both, uh, you know, democratic countries and, and have a well-financed, well-functioning military, well-integrated, shouldn't be such a difficult countries to accept into NATO. So, I would say that if something is going to push this forward, it's not so much what Sweden is doing now. I, I, I don't know. I think Sweden has done some change, implemented new terror laws and is starting opening up to selling some weapons again to Turkey and, and things like that. I guess what will make the difference is the pressure from the other countries who feel like, okay, this is getting embarrassing for NATO. Interesting uh, analysis to take along for next week's summit. So what's next for you? Well, you have all this... EU experience and expertise. What's next for you in working at SVT? Will you still work on EU topics and NATO topics? Yeah, I think so. I there is, I mean, there is an EU election coming up in in a year, and it would be 
I think, stupid to not use the, the, yeah, the expertise and the knowledge that you gain from working three years like I've been doing now. So, uh, yeah, well, I think I will do a bit of a light version, you know, more Stockholm-based uh, and uh, be able to sit in the studio and comment and maybe I hope to be able to help out uh, in the months leading up to the European election. There is a... I've, I've noticed that a difference... Uh, Sweden, in the, the general knowledge about the European Union is, I would say, quite low. And, and most people have a relationship to it like, oh, it's something a bit distant there in Brussels. And, well, as probably the listeners of this podcast well know, I mean, most of the le- legislation, I, would, I don't know, I've seen some numbers, like 70% of the legislation impacting Swedish people are actually made somehow in the EU or, or related to EU legislation and that has consequences for Swedish. So... It is uh, important, and uh, I would, and but it is also difficult to make it interesting and to make it uh, understandable with this processes that you know you have the commission and then the the council and then the parliament and then the trilogues and when do you report? When is it actually decided? It, it's not. I mean, it's easier when it's uh, Trump, Biden, or Le Pen, Macron, and uh, there's very clear uh, political conflicts, and uh, so. That's a challenge that I would like to continue, try and help to to make the audience uh, make well-informed decisions. Maybe that's also where your background as an actor comes in handy, that you're you're strong in storytelling. When we were thinking about this podcast, I um, actually realized you have something in common with President Zelensky of Ukraine, who also made a, who started out as an actor and made an impressive uh, career switch. Maybe that might help when you're a convincing Swedes why the EU matters yeah uh, may, uh, it's that's I, I it's hard for me to to say I I think maybe it's more something that uh, matters more in this case is that the fact that I'm half Italian born in Italy my father lives in Italy and I visited every summer I've been partly grew up in France uh, so I have um, contrary to most Swedes I feel very European and uh, I think at least that has been a help for me in in doing this uh, job. Of course, the the language uh, to be able to speak uh, quite a few languages in Europe, and and also to have this sense of uh, that we are part of of Europe. And, it, and also one thing that's very distant for for Swedes talking about war and NATO and so on is the European Union as a peace project and the wars. I mean, here in Belgium, you cannot every time you turn a corner, there is some memorial of war or another in Sweden that's very distant I mean we hasn't been a war for 200 years or more in Sweden and you mentioned you talked about the fact that your father is Italian do you remember the first story you ever did in Italy and was that a a special experience knowing that you were in your father country so to speak and were working there yeah well I I did a few stories in Italy uh, earlier before this uh correspondent period I was there in um, 2016 when there was an earthquake uh, and also there was a bridge in a and yes I remember the first time I went there it was because well as you know usually when we report about something quite often it's something negative that has happened some tragedy or as this earthquake for example and I remember it was 
it got under my skin more when the people affected spoke the language in which my father sang to me when I was a kid. You know, it's it it's there is a small distance when you do stories in countries where it's not your native language, which can also be a bit of a help because as a, as when you work as a prof, I mean. I I I wouldn't want to be completely, you know, ice cold psychopath because then I I don't think I can do my job properly. I to transmit what what actually has happened to someone. I have I have to feel something myself. I think, but that was a difference for me. I remember when when doing these stories in Italy, also before this correspondent period, that it got closer in a way. It's something I often wonder as correspondents: How do you manage your mental health because you're constantly looking at, uh, so to speak, the worst that humans and human society is capable of. How do you balance that out for yourself? Well, as mentioned earlier, I think the, having Philip by my side, we, we have been sharing a lot of these moments. And then for me, I mean, I I have a, a wife and three kids, and, and which are very important to me, of course, and which, I mean, I always come back to to that and having to handle a fight over screen time or which uh, I think helps me helps me a lot. I remember when the war just broke out and we went to Hungary uh, to the train station in Budapest and there was a train coming with only young women and children. That was quite strong in a way. I mean, as I've mentioned, I've, I've seen uh, migrants and refugees a lot of times and but there was something special with this just train full of women and children coming and it was so clear that they were just their normality had been broken like shattered in a second uh, you know in in just a few days 3 days ago these kids were in kindergarten in, in kiev or something and now they're just pouring out on the train station in the, in, in budapest that that was quite strong for me actually that, that the war became uh, something real there in the eyes of these children and and their mothers and then we had a couple of days we we were there in budapest and we went to the border and, and also train station there and so on and i remember while working of course you keep a bit of a distance and the strain you have to deliver all these lives and make a peace and uh, and then after a couple of days of intensive working we had a night more you know, off in Budapest and I walked around and I had a video call with, with my own kids uh, who were sitting there in, you know, safety and had food on the table and, yeah, we're fighting over some petty thing like, uh, can I watch YouTube or not or something like that. And that, um, I remember that got to me. So that, that night I, I cried because, yeah, that was... That that got to me. And your kids, do they know what you do? Do they realize it? Do they are they proud of you? Do they know what you're out there doing every day? Yeah, I I think so. Yeah, well, they they do, and also they. I have a home studio in the garage for you know sometimes these very early morning lives, just commenting something from Brussels and so on. I I just put on a shirt and go out in the garage and have a backdrop of Brussels. So they they certainly know. In the beginning, uh, we were quite afraid that they would make noise. It would be embarrassing, you know, these viral videos where kids <laughs> come in and 
So uh, my wife would, when I had a live, maybe in the evening, nine o'clock in the evening, it's, it's bedtime normally, but she would take the kids in, in the pajamas in the car for a drive around the neighborhood for 10 minutes. But then uh, after a few months, we learned that ah, we, we become a, became a bit less uh, prudent. But of course, so they know when, when that's maybe the downside, that is the downside of these three years. It, it's been an amazing job and, and such a privilege to meet all these people and get to be in all these places. But of course, I haven't been as present a father as I would like to be. I mean, quite often, you know, something happens, we're sitting having dinner and, I, and I'm all of a sudden just scrolling the phone and chatting with some editor and, you know, dad is not... I'm there physically, but I'm not there mentally. And then oh, I have to be in TV in 10 minutes. Uh, uh, and, you know, no, 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 I cannot play now. I have to iron a shirt and, you know. So that's the, the and that's what I'm looking for. I think w- what will keep the depression away when I move back home, because it's a bit like I've been on a high for three years, very intensive. And now I, it's going to be more, you know, taking the subway at the same time every morning in meetings. And um, the fact that, that I will then get to focus a bit more on, on being a father and, well, you know, maybe work out from time to time and meet some friends and be able to have a dinner or a Saturday night with friends without, you know, 50% chance of canceling it. Uh, that, that'll be nice. A whole new life is waiting. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add? Any kind of anecdote or anything you wish would have been said or discussed? Well, one strong moment during these three years was also there was a, a summit a extra summit the 25th of february the day after the invasion and that's also a memory that will stay with me forever the the night as as often is the case these summits go on until the middle of the night and then uh, the, the swedish prime minister who was then magdalena anderson she came out at about, i don't know three four in the morning and we were sitting in a small briefing room Magdalene Andersson and her press person and maybe three or four journalists. It was quite an intimate situation there. And she was visibly touched. She had, for the first time, heard Zelensky speak. And he had uh, held a speech to, to all the European leaders where he said something somewhere hidden in a bunker or something. And he had said, like, this might be the last time you see me. And And, and it was obvious that she was almost breaking into tears. And it was quite a um, special situation to sit in this little room in the middle of the night, having the prime minister very moved like this, speaking about she, she never experienced anything like this. And my sense was that something happened in that room. Of course, the invasion happened, but something happened with that speech of Zelensky and, and with, there was a sense of urgence and seriousness that I hadn't seen in the European Union before. And after that, there was a just a series of extra summits. They had our meetings. They had the migration meeting and Europe opened his arm to the to the Ukrainian refugees. Then there were energy councils to, uh, and then the, the sanctions and the support. And, and the, there was a sense of um, unity and, and, uh, and actually a European Union. I mean, you can sometimes blame the European Union for being a bit bureaucratic and slow and and all these fights over small petty things and etc. But there was something happened there, and I I felt Europe really, in a way, stepped up to the to the task in a way. And it's been it's been very it was very interesting to see uh, how the European Union reacted there. 
and 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 that night in the little briefing room with the prime minister I will never forget. We'll undoubtedly think back at this when we're making stories about this in the future. David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and good luck with whatever comes next. We're looking forward to seeing the stories you'll be telling. Thank you. A pleasure. Mm-hmm.